Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Luke Thompson. Luke is a Republican political consultant. He writes frequently for National Review and co-hosts its Constitutionally Speaking podcast. Today, we're going to discuss his uh, terrific essay, Native Son, which chronicles California Governor Gavin Newsom's rise to power in California and assesses his viability as a possible presidential candidate. The essay uh, appears in our recent special issue, Can California Be Golden Again? So, Luke, thanks very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. Um, So, Newsom, uh, as you note, frequently plays up his his, uh, humble roots in his second inaugural address earlier this year. He described himself as a child of divorce and dyslexia, and he's claimed uh, that his earliest memories are of his parents fighting over money. So, you know, this may be true, but it's certainly not as you document the whole story. In fact, uh, Newsom's father's family has been entrenched in San Francisco politics for generations and intertwined with the city's wealthiest, most powerful families. So I wonder if you could give a brief overview of the Newsom family's rise to prominence in California politics and how its ties with San Francisco's elite provided, as as you put it in your essay, a launch pad for Newsom's political career. Sure, happy to. Um, I, I guess the short version is uh, Newsom's great-grandfather immigrated to California from Ireland. Uh, his grandfather got a job in um, democratic machine politics before the Second World War and um, really was a, was an important player during the Truman administration um, in dispensing patronage jobs. Uh, that that Newsom, Newsom number two, um, did two things that I think are really important for people to understand. The first is, as the California machine got broken up by um, reforming liberals um, nationally, Estes Kefauver, and and within California by by some local figures, and the party began to move away from a machine and towards more of a, an ideological party, uh, it was Newsom's grandfather that made that transition um, remarkably deftly. Uh, he also sent his son to a well-heeled Jesuit uh, prep school in San Francisco, where uh, his son became uh, intimate friends, uh, close through their entire lives, uh, with Gordon Getty, uh, who is the uh, younger son—not the youngest, but one of the sons of um, the then the wealthiest uh, uh, man in the world, um, uh, J. Paul Getty, who, of course was the scion of the, or was the, the man who ran the Getty oil sort of octopus, if you will, this giant sprawling international energy behemoth. Um, and it's, it's Newsom's father, Bill, who sort of consolidates the family's position in the social elite. At the same time, he continues on his father's tradition of being a major player within democratic politics and the sort of rough and tumble of, of democratic politics. Um, and so while it's certainly true that when Gavin Newsom was very young, uh, his father's income was relatively low compared to what he was accustomed to, um, he had just been part of a, of a rather notorious bankruptcy of a technology company that involved the Gettys and um, uh, you know, then Governor Ronald Reagan's appointment secretary, as well as a, a neo-Nazi, or not a neo-Nazi, a Nazi, a former member of the, the SS who had been smuggled out of 
Europe by um, as part of Operation Paperclip, and it sort of recapitulated himself as as a as a German resistance member, which he was he was not. But that's a it's one of the many interesting digressions about Bill Newsom's life. So it it's a it's a very strange kind of of piece of of California history, and it's uh, Otto von Bolschwein is his name. I think I'm probably I might be bastardizing that, um, but uh, he had been. He'd been an officer in the SS, um, had 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 then sort of gotten himself exfiltrated, um, seemingly by the CIA as part of the sort of Nazi collecting operation, uh, presenting himself as an engineer and a and a and a German resistance figure. When in fact, what he'd been is is more or less just a bog standard SS officer. But he um, Bolschwein had done a lot of um, work. You might call it money laundering. You might call it um, taking control of the Western European banking system. And after the war, he had a lot of relationships with uh, Western European finance. And so he was picked up by the uh, company TCI that Bill Newsom had been um, the uh, had been the general counsel for. Uh, as as sort of a, initially a consultant, and then was eventually made CEO. And and Newsom and Bolschwein went to Western Europe to sell TCI's technology, which was sort of a security technology and, and um, secure imaging technology, uh, to interests in Western Europe. Um, many of whom it seems Bolschwein knew from his time in the SS. Um, it, it's you know there's no evidence that Newsom knew about. Bolschwein's background at the time, um, but he's just one of these fascinating and colorful characters that comes in and out of Bill Newsom's life. Um, and and I think, you know, after TCI falls apart because of a, of a stock uh, trading scandal, um, you know, the elder Newsom is, is back in California after touring Europe for a year and a half and is sort of running out of money. And that, that seems to be when the family you know, dissolves effectively, um, or at least the process begins. They they try to, um, you know, Bill tries to run for office uh, in 1968, loses, and then the Gettys, who are major investors in TCI, pair him up with von Bolschwein and send him off to Western Europe for, you know, off and on over the next two years to sell, um, to sell technology to Western European um, financial interests. So it's it's crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah, and and so you know, Gavin really came out of a very well connected background. Far from being um, solely a child of divorce and dyslexia, he he was uh, almost groomed for power. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't even say groomed or almost. I I think it's 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 true. You know, it's it's certainly true that he is a child of divorce and dyslexia, and I think that there were periods of of serious you know, month to month precarity, you might say, for, for Newsom growing up. And I think the divorce was difficult. Um, but it, his father didn't abandon him, uh, certainly. And he maintains that he's he's always said that he had a very good relationship with both of his parents, both now deceased. Um, and yeah, he he was he's treated by Gordon Getty as as another son. And so so f- for his political career, right from the beginning, Gavin Newsom uh, you know, showed a kind of capacity to balance progressivism, a, a kind of, uh, you know, a left-wing position on cultural issues with 
you know, maybe not fiscal constraint, but at least a recognition of the interests of the business world, especially real estate. So he was an early champion, as many people know, of, of gay marriage. Um, and, you know, he got a reputation, I guess, as a kind of liberal culture warrior. Yet he repeatedly demonstrated, um, you know, that he wasn't completely insane to the business community. So, so how did these instincts for both progressivism and a certain kind of restraint uh, help him form uh, his political identity? And, you know, have they continued to hold as he, he rose to governor? Sure. So when, when Gavin enters the political scene in San Francisco municipal politics, he mainly does so as an avatar of the business community, specifically real estate and, and some other you know, parallel parts of the economy. You know, he's, he's a personally impressive figure in that world, especially from the standpoint of someone who's able to raise a lot of money. Um, you know, he's handsome, he's young, um, he's, he's a, a fairly dynamic person, and of course is, you know, intimately connected to the Gettys, and that, that's different than what you're used to seeing on the, on the city council. Um, he, but he sort of gets a reputation for being, you know, by San Francisco standards, almost a crypto right winger. And so from early in his career, you can see him looking over his left shoulder. Um, and he's, and he's concerned about challenges from the left. Uh, when he runs for mayor, he does very well in the first round running against, you know, a group of, of, um, of other candidates, but in the runoff election, he barely gains any vote share. Um, and, and I think that's a really striking thing for him and, and it scares him because it suggests that there's a really consolidating left-wing anti-Newsom vote in the city. And that's when you see him pivot towards what you might call gestural progressivism. Um, it's not all culture war stuff. He does suggest that he's going to, you know, make San Francisco a single payer healthcare city, um, he does things that are materially consequential, but they rarely get beyond the gestural stage, right? So, um, or that they would be important uh, and have material consequences if he implemented them, but there's not always a lot of follow through. Um, he's probably best known for being an early adopter of, um, you know, legal, sort of legalizing gay marriage locally. Uh, he comes out hard against Proposition 8, raises a lot of money for the anti-Prop 8 ballot initiative um, and, and more or less acts in open defiance of it, um, even after it passes. And he finds that this kind of, again, what you might call gestural progressivism doesn't get rid of, but it certainly blunts the intensity of the left-wing skepticism of him. Um, you know, I suspect it's among the more affluent white progressives that this is effective. Um, you know, he tries a lot of things, right? Like he stands in a picket line with striking um, hotel workers. He, as I mentioned, says that he's going to make San Francisco a single payer city. He turns it into a sanctuary city. Right? There are there are things that he does in different sort of modes, but but the culture war seems to be the thing that is most effective in not eliminating, but minimizing the amount of damage that the left wing of the Democratic Party can do to him. I guess that that has continued as as governor to some extent. Uh, you know, he's he's pushed for a number of progressive causes as governor. Um, you know, a, a more lenient criminal justice system, 
uh, certainly stricter environmental regulations. Um, his stance during the pandemic was probably the most aggressive among governors in terms of locking down um, the economy. And I think as a result of some of these policies, you, you are seeing damage. So California's crime has spiked. Housing costs are exorbitant along the coast. Um, the state lost population uh, for the first time, I think, ever um, in 2020. Uh, but despite you know this this uh, these these real signs of of weakness, Newsom survived the 2021 recall effort. He won a second gubernatorial term. Um, so I, I wonder, you know, what what your view is uh, of him as governor and how it's affected the California model. And then secondly, um, what's your position on? whether he is a potential presidential candidate that we should take seriously. Um, a lot of people have said, well, if, if Joe Biden falters, which is not unimaginable, uh, you could see uh, Newsom sweeping in and being the nominee for the Democrats. So I, I wonder on those two fronts, what do you, what do you take his uh, record to be as governor? And uh, what do you think of him as a um, potential presidential candidate? Sure. So the, the 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 California model, I think, is an important thing to define because it's one of the things that has really constrained Newsom, um, and and has forced in in some ways forced him into some of these culture war fights, um, only and only to see himself then kind of mugged by reality and backtrack. Um, you know what is the California model? So a couple of events happened in the 1970s that are that are really important. Um, the first is, you know, you have the outbreak of really militant, radical politics post-Vietnam in California. Most people associate sort of radicalism with the Vietnam War. But if you look at what happens in California, most of the most dramatic events that we associate with political radicalism in the state happen after um, American troops leave Vietnam in 1973. So, you know, Two people try to assassinate Gerald Ford within a couple of months in the state. Um, you have, uh, you know, the advent of People's Temple led by Jim Jones. That, of course, culminates in the mass suicide in Guyana of those um, of Jones's followers. And then the, you know, just days after that, I think maybe ten days or two weeks after that, you have the notorious Milk Muscone killings in San Francisco City Hall. Um, all of these events are, they sort of teach the, the democratic establishment in San Francisco. And at this point, San Francisco is a democratic town and, and Los Angeles is more or less a Republican town. Um, that they can, they can play footsie with radicalism, but they really have to tamp it down. And um, part of the way they tamp it down is by distributing goods, by paying off nonprofits and things like that over the next you know, 50 years, essentially. Um, the other thing that happens is a taxpayer revolt statewide leads to the passage by ballot initiative of Prop 13. Prop 13 caps the amount that property taxes for both uh, residential and commercial property can be increased year over year. And the result of this is that as a practical matter, Californians pay a fraction um, in terms of property taxes of what they would pay if property were assessed at market rate, right? If assessments were allowed to float. 
Um, so if you've been in your property for a long time, you're going to be protected from paying really, really onerous taxes. And, and part of what drove Prop 13 was that as California boomed and there was a hunger for property, older people were functionally being taxed out of their homes. You know, people who'd lived in their homes for 30, 40 years were suddenly seeing their tax bills spike and they were having to sell and move because they couldn't afford to pay the taxes on their homes. Um, but what this has done is it's imposed really, really intense austerity sort of through the back door on the income stream for California. And the way California is compensated for this is through massive uh, excise taxes, sales taxes, and income taxes. The governor of California, whoever it is, has to live kind of, if you're a Democrat, trapped between these two forces. You have to be comfortable enough with radicalism because they're a large block of your, your electorate, but not owned by them. And at the same time, you don't have an endless amount of money to distribute, even as you're paying off an ever-expanding number of sort of interest groups in the cartel party that is the California Democratic Party. So Newsom operating within that model, I think, believed that he could take the style of politics that he had had that he had executed with to some success as mayor and then lieutenant governor. You know, the lieutenant governor doesn't really have that many concrete responsibilities, more in California than in other states, um, but not a ton of day-to-day -day responsibilities. And so, you know, Newsom got really good at honing his kind of culture war um, skills. I think he felt that he could take those into the governor's mansion and it would be fine. And what he's found is that um, quite the opposite has happened, uh, you know, and we've seen him reversing on this, right? His first couple of years as governor, he was very enthusiastic about prison reform. He shifted course on that. Most of that's come in the form of vetoing more radical proposals from the state legislature, but certainly you would see Newsom in his, I, I, I would anticipate first and second year Newsom governorship would have signed those pieces of legislation rather than, than vetoing them. Um, you know, Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant is another great example. Um, Newsom has been an advocate for closing it up until in the last 12 months where he's reversed course and pushed for and succeeded in getting an extension on the nuclear power plant's um, lifeline and, and uh, licensing. And that's largely because the California grid, um, which is governed by its own uh, spot, uh, electricity spot market, is very fragile. And you know, last summer, we came within a hair's breadth of rolling blackouts and frankly had some regional grid operators not of their own volition done load shedding events. We might have seen it. So, um, you know, I guess when it comes to assessing Newsom, I'm obviously not going to be a fan of his policy priorities because I'm a conservative and he's a progressive, but I, I think that he came into office very irresponsible. I do think he's started to recognize the limits of uh, that reality is imposing on some of the utopias that he's been asked to embrace as a as a legislator, um, or sorry, as a chief executive. Uh, but you know, it's pretty clear he doesn't know how to pivot out of this corner that he's found himself in. And I I think there are two ways to read his going off to Texas and California and buying ads and billboards and things like that attacking Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis. One way to read it is this is laying the groundwork for presidential candidacy in the future. Another way to read it is that this is just trying to do more of the same, right? This is sort of a, a culture war affectation for the benefit 
of his sort of affluent progressive, the, the affluent progressive part of the Democratic coalition in California. And it's designed, it's designed to try to keep those people on side so that they don't decide to, to make more concrete material demands in terms of policy that will lead to disastrous knock-on effects. And I mean, look, the most, the most glaring example of Newsom's failure as a chief executive, and again, not all of this is his fault, but it has to be said that this has happened while he has been at the apex of California politics, is that for the first time, California is losing population. Um, and that's, people are voting with their feet, and that's a tremendously damning um, you know, state of affairs. So I, I think how do all this shapes up for him as a presidential candidate, um, the likelihood of him being a contender in 2024 is next to nothing absent some dramatic exogenous event that would lead to Joe Biden not running for, for re-election, something he's already said he's going to do. So you know, that would be such an extraordinary event, it would shake all manner of different outcomes, and, and it's sort of hard to speculate about one way or the other. Looking ahead to 2028, I, I think that Newsom is going to struggle. Um, I think he's going to struggle for a couple of reasons. The first is he's not going to have a record that he can run on. I think even within a Democratic primary, there's plenty of material that he can be hit on. From the left, he can be hit for flip-flopping on some of his initial progressive commitments. And I think from the center, he can be hit on uh, you know, driving his state's economy and quality of life into the ditch. Uh, at the same time, you know, California does a very poor job of training its politicians for the um, rough and tumble of presidential politics, which tend to be retail heavy. Now, we've seen the DNC make conscious moves to downplay and, and push back in the calendar Iowa and New Hampshire with an eye to emphasizing larger states, more diverse states, and also, I think not coincidentally, states that require less in terms of retail politics. Right, something Joe Biden is not really physically equipped to do right now. So that might accidentally advantage Gavin compared to the status quo ante. But uh, still, he will be expected to glad hand and go to a lot of barbecues and spend a lot of time with super high information voters stacked up against other Democrats in circumstances where his spending advantage will not matter that much. Now, Gavin is very slick. He has done a really good job. Uh, as a municipal politician and even in his entry into politics, ingratiating himself with lots of different types of people. So unlike, say, Kamala Harris, he he has some retail chops. He has some skills, um, skills that she evidently lacks because California politics never forced her to learn them in order to rise to the level of, of the U.S. Senate. But, you know, whether those skills are going to stack up against some of the other, you know, potential post-Biden contenders, uh, really remains to be seen. I'm I'm pretty skeptical. Now he'll be able to raise money, and um, he'll certainly campaign hard. The one thing that that I don't think can be said of of Gavin Newsom, the governor, is that he's lazy. Um, he he loves politics and he loves politicking, and he will get out there after it. But um, you know, he he may be somewhat of an indolent administrator, but I, he's not a lazy campaigner. I, I am skeptical that he'll translate well to the national stage for all those reasons that I just laid out, but we shall see. Well, Luke, thank you very much. Uh, don't forget to check out Luke Thompson's essay on the City Journal website. That's www.city-journal.org. 
it's a it's a superb profile of Gavin Newsom's rise to political influence in California. It's called Native Son, and it's in our special issue. Can California be golden again? Uh, we'll link to Luke Thompson's author page in the description, and you can find him on Twitter at lt uh, ltt Thompson. Yes, two two T's, no N. Yes, H O M P S O. Yes. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as usual, if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a nice rating on iTunes. Luke Thompson, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.